just started to pray. Father Lord, I just want to thank you for today. I thank you that we can be here today and get into the season of Easter, Lord, and think about the sacrifice that God made for us to have a relationship with you, Lord. I just want to commit the sermon today into your hands. I pray that you should please be the one to do the speaking, Lord. I pray that you should please just find a way to reach everyone here um, today with your words that we're going to share and commit everything to your hands, Lord. In Jesus' name. Yeah. So, I must admit that every time I have to come in front here, there's always a bit of nerves. Um, it's particularly worse now because there are not a lot of people. Yeah. When there are more people, it's a lot easier to just stare and not look at a particular person. <laughs> but, um, but now it's a bit more difficult. And, <laughs> and normally when I come up here, it's for, to do the welcome or the communion, um, which is not too bad because only about five minutes. And before the nerves paralyze you, you five minutes is gone and you go back to sit down. But for the same one, I think it would be a good idea for it to be a little over five minutes long so that people are not wondering if it was actually the same one, or I just made a very long announcement. <laughs> so, but luckily, I've had time to prepare for this. Malcolm told me about this like six weeks ago, yeah. so I had time to try and come up with a plan to, to break the ice in the room. And the, the first plan that came to my mind was to start by playing a short video. And it was a good plan, but the problem is that these days, every video has had like 100 million views. And <laughs> And you play a video you were hoping would make people go, wow. But they're like, oh yeah, I saw that two weeks ago. <laughs> so I think I'll just stick with the old-fashioned way of starting, asking you to turn to Luke chapter 18. You know what, guys? I changed my mind. I'll start with a video.
So, David Attenborough has done documentaries like that for over 30 years, and in the end, he says that was a near miraculous escape, probably because he's seen more awesome things than that. But for me, that's probably the closest, closest visualization of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, I guess. So today, we're going to be talking about miracles. Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about maximizing our chances of of having, of experiencing miracles. So basically, maximizing our chances of either experiencing miracles firsthand or maximizing our chances of um, <coughs> leading others to experience miracles. Now, I'm going to be reading from, like I said earlier, Luke chapter 18. Now, Luke chapter 18, the summary of what we're going to read is, is quite straightforward. Jesus restored a man's sight. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had done that. It wasn't his first miracle, and it wasn't his last. But a couple of things, I think, that in the circumstances that led up to this are quite interesting, and I think they would really help us think about things we could do to um, maximize our chances of experiencing miracles. Before I continue, I'd really like to welcome my friends, Nikki and Yomi. Um, I told them about the service today. They were not going to come because it's Yomi's birthday this month. And in their church, they have this special service for people at the first Sunday of every month. So I really appreciate the fact that you guys could come. So it's a shame I didn't get a cake. Um, so, so to get now, there are a lot of definitions of miracles I, I found in the dictionary. Um, but for context, the ones that I think were relevant today are the first is an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency, which for us is God. And the second one says a remarkable event or development that brings very welcome consequences. Now for Christians, people who believe they would most likely attribute events like this to God. So for me, as an example, I'll say it was a miracle that I got my first job in the UK, which enabled me to stay here, because I prayed hard for it, and the circumstances under which it happened were, were really against, my, against the odds for, for me to get the job. Now, if I explain that to someone who didn't believe in God, they would probably say it was luck or it was because I worked hard, or it was just coincidence that those things happened. And my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and it says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor is the battle to the strong. And it goes to say time and chance happen to them all. Now, for me, God determines time and chance, and... Another interesting good thing I pick from there is that while it's true that God determines time and chance, in which case, even though I'm not swift, I have a chance of winning the race, if I don't join the race, I don't actually have a chance. So basically, there's still, while it's true that God will determine some events, there's still some steps we need to take to make it more likely for that to happen. 
So those are the things we're going to be um, talking about today. So if I read the first verse of Luke chapter 18, verse 35. It says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, today in the first world, there, and because of all the technological advances, a blind person would be able to have cl close to a normal life in terms of getting jobs, but in spite of that, there's still huge challenges a blind person would face today, even with all the technology. But 2,000 years ago, it would have been a lot worse. There wouldn't have been the things in place that make it possible to get jobs or get around. So the only job that a blind person could do, the only way they could earn a living back then, would basically be to beg. So we are told here that this man sat somewhere outside the city walls. This event is also recorded in Mark chapter 10 and basically says as Jesus entered um, Jericho. So where this um, beggar was, was, was positioned was a good place for him economically. Now it was a good place because it, at the entrance of a city it's more likely a lot of people would pass and if he depended on begging it made sense for him to be positioned somewhere where it was very likely that a lot of people would give him money. It wouldn't have made economic sense for him to go to a nice quiet area where the sun is not too noisy and, and life is more quiet and calm. Now because he was positioned in this place now, for Jesus' ministry, he had to basically do move from cities to cities, all right? So this also made it more likely for him to actually have that encounter with Jesus. So the first um, um, point I'm going to make is positioning ourselves. So in order to make it more likely for us to experience miracles, or to experience miracles, either firsthand or help others experience it, is to position ourselves. Now, positioning ourselves, we see a lot of examples in the Bible. For instance, Acts chapter 8, verse 29 says, The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. So basically, the process will, which would eventually lead to the first convert, or one of the earliest converts to Christianity, started with Philip taking a particular position where it made it more likely for these events to happen. Now, in a practical sense, what are the things we can do to position ourselves in just our day-to-day -day lives? Now, one thing we all do all the time, we have conversations. We have conversations with people. We have conversations at work, at home, at the bus stop. And I think one way we could position ourselves is to basically make ourselves available during conversations, make ourselves available for people to talk to or to speak to other people. And when I say this, I, I'm talking about, because we have conversations all the time, it is one thing that, over, because we constantly experience it, there's that likelihood of conversations just getting to the level where it's just surface talk. Now, positioning ourselves will mean putting ourselves in a position where we are available during the conversation. When we ask how are you, to actually mean it and listen. When we talk to people and people ask us questions, to make a little more effort sometimes to go beyond just talking about 
the weather, for instance, which will be a normal sort of um, normal topic of conversation all the time. Making ourselves available would mean listening, paying attention, picking up on things that people say, and finding out opportunities where we can actually reach out to them. We see another good example of this in John chapter 4, verse 6. And I'll read, you don't have to turn there. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, by starting this conversation and the series of questions that followed through that, a lot of Samaritans would eventually come to God. And this is, this is how we could position ourselves during, um, put ourselves in a position where we can help people experience miracles and help other people. And miracles can be in different forms. It could be helping to lead people to know God. It could be helping someone at different points in their relationships with their spouses, with their parents. And I think putting ourselves in position can have very, very huge effects. How, is it, how important is it really to take up position in making things happen? So I'll start with this. I'll give us this little quiz. Just by show of hands, tell me if you know who this is. <coughs> Don't say the name. Oh. Yeah, just show of hands. Okay. That's good. It's working well. <laughs> what about this person? Yeah. So a lot more people know this person, right? So we all know Ronaldo. He's, uh, he's considered one of the greatest footballers of all time. I find something I quite find inter interesting, though. I noticed that the only person who knew the previous person is Nike, and her husband is a very big football fan. But <laughs> I thought he would know the person. Anyway, now what's interesting here is that we all know Ronaldo. He's one of the greatest of all time. <clears throat> now. Klose, who is a German, has a record of scoring the highest number of goals in World Cups. Now, Ronaldo, if you look at this, where those balls are, that shows the position from which he scored all his goals, all his 16 goals. And for Ronaldo, you can see that it's a bit more diverse. Now, something else that this doesn't capture is that for Klose, most of the goals were from headers, about seven of them. Basically, balls that were passed to him. So he was just at the right place and all he needed to do was get the ball in and score the goal. But for Ronaldo, even though it showed so those positions, in a lot of cases he had to walk around, dribble from maybe the middle of the field to get to a point where he took the shot from. So you can see that positioning plays a very big role. At the end of the day, football is about who scores more goals. And while it's true that Ronaldo is a person that almost everyone remember and is considered all great, <coughs> he's the one who has that record. He's the one who's scored the most goals. And he's actually more recent. He, was, he played in the last World Cup. Whereas for Ronaldo, I think it was two World Cups back. So we can see just how the significance of being able to position ourselves in circumstances. Now, I believe that if we can position ourselves in in conversations, in things we do from day to day, we have a, a good chance of helping people or helping ourselves get to the point where 
we can experience those moments of magic, those moments where, those moments that take our breath away, moments where great things happen. So we position ourselves, that's the first step. After we get in position, what next? So I'm going to read verse, continue reading from verse 36. I'll read from verse 36 to 38 now. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. A second point would be to pay attention and to play on your strengths. Now, no matter what, we're all happy for the iguana in the, in the video that it survived. But the truth is that no matter what happened, a miracle would have happened. I say that because, as we heard, probably heard at the beginning of the video, these snakes have very poor sight. So they have to depend a lot on their sense of hearing to actually know where their next meal will come from. So it would be amazing if, if you saw how they were going after that. It was basically from listening to the sound. They couldn't see, but that's not so much of a problem. They have to depend on their hearing. And that's what we see here. The blind man could not see, but everything, his survival depended on how much attention he paid, how well he listened to understand what was happening around him. Now, it is, it is quite interesting to see that when he asked who he was, if you compare the response of the crowd in describing Jesus to how he described it, you find out that this is one person who had paid a lot of attention. In verse 37, he says, it says, They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, to the people in the crowd, Jesus was the carpenter that lived in one of the towns. Basically, no Jesus of Nazareth. But for this man, as soon as he heard that, he remembered the scriptures. He had never read the scriptures. But he obviously had heard it. And he knew that this was not just the guy next door. This was someone who the scripture had described as the Savior. And he describes him as the son of David. He knew who he was. He paid attention to who he was. A very good analogy, a good way to think about this would be to see how, how much he knew Jesus. He knew, he knew him more than the other people who could see him. A good way to think about it is, let's assume you, you met someone who is from the church in Singapore, one of our churches in Singapore, and he says, oh, there was a time some guy came to preach. His name is Malcolm from Watford. And when he says, I say, oh, Malcolm, that's Malcolm Cox, Penny's husband. He has two kids, um, daughter called Lydia and the younger one called Fred. Oh, Malcolm, that guy... It's hard to believe, but the guy always has a smile on his face in, in spite of the fact that he can't eat croissants for breakfast or have <laughs> sticky toffee pudding because of his wit intolerance. And then the response you probably get from the guy will be, oh, now I understand. Because I thought it was a little weird that he asked for celery for dessert rather than <laughs> something more interesting. But basically, this man knew who Jesus was. He understood who he was. He had a weakness in that he couldn't see, but his weakness wouldn't hold him back. The fact that he couldn't see was not a problem, but rather he focused on what his, 
the strengths were. And I remember when, when I just graduated from university and I was going for one of my first big job interviews, they told us we were going to do a presentation where we talk about three of our strengths and three of our weaknesses. And we, we basically had to do the presentation and prepare before we go in. And it was strange for me to talk about what your weaknesses were. And got together with a couple of friends, then all of us looking for work and trying to discuss, okay, what, what would be the best weakness to present? For me, I knew that I was shy. I didn't like working in groups. But I, I didn't think that was a very good weakness to present at a job interview. So we had to think of the best weakness. And one of my friends <laughs> said, um, you can tell them that you're sometimes too meticulous. And I thought, oh, that sounds really good. I think that sounds like a very good weakness. And I thought, well, what does it mean, though? I, I didn't know what it meant at the time. But the one that was, that was even the best weakness, one of my friends came and said, Osage, just tell them, but your weakness is that you're too strong. <laughs> that would be an interesting one. Now, it's interesting, we have to think a lot about what weaknesses to, to present. But I know that for me, and for a lot of people I've met, we're very much aware of our weaknesses, and we pay more attention to it to the point that it could actually make us not focus on our strengths. Now, it's important to be aware of our weaknesses. I don't think it's a bad thing. But I think if it's with the view of trying to improve on them, that is good. But if it's at the, to the point where it paralyzes us or it makes it hard for us to focus on what we have that God has given us and using that to, to do things, then it, it becomes a problem. One thing personally I've noticed, I think in church more than anywhere else is, in being, we, in being overly cautious not to come across as maybe prideful or arrogant, we play down our strengths. We're very careful not to give the impression that, oh, I'm, I'm being proud. And, and I think it's important. Pride is flaunting your strength in people's faces. But if we understand our strengths and we use them properly, I think we could, it could really help us take advantage of situations where we can potentially make it more likely for people to experience miracles. So I think it's important to just try and pay attention to that, that we're not, our strengths do not get to the point where they, they, we consider them weaknesses. If you think of Klose, um, the footballer in the previous slide, he, doesn't, he can't dribble as well as Ronaldo. And the truth is that there's really no point for him to do that. His strength was that he knows where to stay, he's very good at jumping and heading the ball. Imagine if he, he tried to focus on, okay, how can I dribble then? It would be a distraction because for him, for Ronaldo, the way he plays is different. He can take the ball from someone and he can do magic with it. For the other guy, it doesn't matter. So we all have different strengths and different weaknesses. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter too much what they are. It's basically trying to think of what God has given us and taking advantage of those we see another example with Moses. When God called Moses, he made a lot of excuses about the fact that he couldn't, he couldn't speak um, eloquently. And you notice that God, who would eventually split the Red Sea, could have easily fixed that problem. But he didn't think it was important. Basically, he knew that he had other potentials, and that weakness was not going to stand in the way 
of freeing the Israelites from, from Egypt. So it's important for us to, to um, pay attention and to focus on our strengths rather than play on our, um, on our weaknesses. Learn from verse 18, sorry, from verse 39 to 43. So this is after he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The Bible says that those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received the sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When the people saw this, they were when the people saw it, they also praised God. So our final point for today is <coughs> refuse to be intimidated and know what you want. Now, the people who led the way, the Bible tells us that the people who led the way told him to stop. The people who had the most potential to actually lead this man to Jesus were the very people who tried to stop him. They were basically like, oh, shut up, don't, don't disturb this guy. And he knew Jesus more than those people knew Jesus. He knew who he was, the way the scripture had described them and described him. But for those people, he was someone who was a popular guy and everyone is just like going along with him. It's almost like having 100 million Instagram followers or but those people don't really know you. And this is exactly what it was there. Lots of people follow people with popularity. And, and in the process, we can see that the intimidation to the man came from other people around. But in a lot of cases, the intimidation can actually come from within. In a lot of cases, we could actually be intimidated by that second thought that says, you know, you're just going to make a fool of yourself. Or that second voice that says, you failed many times before. How is this time going to be different? There's a proverb that says, if there's no enemy within, the enemy outside can do us no harm. Sometimes the biggest enemy we have to fight with is actually ourselves. And the Bible describes this type of intimidation that comes from within, this type of doubt. It is called lack of faith. And that's what we heard from um, Tunde's communion. And if you think about it, Peter actually walked on water like Jesus did. But the only difference, the, the point where he began to sink was because doubt came in. He got intimidated by his thoughts. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that <clears throat> without faith it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say it is difficult. It doesn't say it is unlikely. It says it's, it's it is impossible. It says that anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I had not thought about this before, but as I read this, um, the attitude of the blind man here, I realized that his attitude perfectly captured what is described in Hebrews chapter, um, chapter 11. So first it says, those who come to him must believe he exists. Now, to a lot of people in the crowd, he was Jesus of Nazareth. But for this blind man, it was 
Jesus who was described in the, in the scripture. So Jesus was real to him. It wasn't just the guy next to it. It was someone who was prophesied. And to him, Jesus was real. So he believed that he existed. And he honestly sought Jesus at that point because a lot of people tried to push him. They tried to push him away and intimidate him. But the more they pushed him away, the more he fought to try and reach him. And that perfectly captures what the Bible describes here. But then, you see someone with so much faith, and he gets to a point where his request is actually vague. He says, have mercy on me. And what does that really mean? Jesus knew exactly what he wanted. But I think him saying, asking, what do you want me to do for you, might just be a hint of how we should present our request before God, rather than being vague, just being specific. And it's important to ask ourselves that question sometimes. What do I want? What do you want? Because being able to understand that question, ask ourselves and answer that question, also makes it possible for us to cut out the noise and the things that are not very important. Steve Jobs started Apple in, I think, 1976, Apple Computers. And then in 1985, he was kicked out of the company. He had issues with the shareholders and then was kicked out. So he was away from the company for about 11 years and he came back in 1997. Now when he came back, he realized that the company had changed so much. When he created Apple, it was a computer company. But when he came back, they were doing a lot of things. They were creating printers, scanners, cameras. They had a lot of products. And a lot of these products were great products. But one of the steps he took to try and revive Apple, which at the point was at the brink of bankruptcy, was that he cut off like 70% of their products. Basically, almost all the things people were working on. A lot of people, unfortunately, lost their jobs. And then for the computers, he said, if I asked, if my mom asked me what computers she should buy from us, there's so many of them, I wouldn't even know what to tell her. So he, he basically created four categories of computers and said anything that didn't fit into those categories would just be cut off. And the categories were, okay, one computer for business, portable computer for business user, users, desktop computers for business users, and then a portable computer for ordinary users, and a desktop computer for ordinary users. Just sim four simple categories. And eventually, Apple will become the biggest company in the world. So it is very important for us to have a sense of what we want. Focus is very important. And also understanding that intimidation can be in the way of achieving the goals um, that we're trying to get. So how do we maximize our chances? The first thing is for us to position ourselves. The next is to pay attention and to play on our strengths, to basically know where to put our weaknesses and to refuse to be intimidated, to have a clear sense of purpose. So this is basically what I um, wanted to share. But before um, I finish off, I'll show one more video that I believe captures all the steps in about two minutes.
I saw this quote, I heard it for the first time a few years ago, I forgot to put the pen in, but it's an English poet called G.K., I've forgotten his last name. Yeah, cool, thanks. So basically it says we are perishing for the want of wonder, not for want of wonders. And the world is full of moments of magic, moments that would take our breath away. But because things are happening so quickly, People don't really slow down to capture any of these interesting times, these moments that could take your breath away, moments that could change your life. So a lot is happening, all the wonders are there, but in the hurry to get things done, we don't slow down enough. But if we could slow down and just <coughs> capture just one moment, things could happen. Miracles could happen, people could have a chance to experience things like knowing God, which would make a big difference. So I really want to thank you for listening. That's all I had to share today. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.